Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 5 is where we left off. We're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11 of Romans chapter 5 as we have been journeying through this beautiful book. We find ourselves at the end of a, a section in Romans 5 where Paul is spelling out the implications of the gospel, the good news of the gospel in the life of a believer. And we're going to end with verse 11 today. And then verse 12 of Romans 5 is a transition, and it's going to begin another section. So we'll get into that, Lord willing, next Sunday or the next. But as you're finding Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, which I'll read in just a moment, let me pause and just uh, mention something that I want us to pray for as a, a, as a church, as a congregation. Uh, my heart is grieving for our nation this morning, as many of us, I'm sure, saw the riots in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the University of Virginia is located. And I, I feel a need pastorally to offer a word uh, addressing this and then call us to pray as, as a church. Now, I hope this goes without saying, but I realize that there are always new people that are coming into our midst that may not understand where we are biblically, theologically, and, and what our anthropology is, what our understanding of what it is to be human. And so I think it bears mentioning and repeating and praying for. I hope it goes without saying that anybody that is truly a believer in Jesus must unequivocally absolutely repudiate racism in any form. As I read my Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that all mankind was created in the image of God. And even after the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, we realize that all people from every tribe and every tongue is fallen by nature. There is no one particular culture or ethnicity that is superior to any other. All mankind has fallen. But even though mankind has fallen, he still bears a semblance of the image of God. Therefore, all people, regardless of what culture they come from, regardless of what ideology or religion they come from, are worthy of our dignity. Even the worst, this is why, friends, even the worst criminal, even the, the worst felon or terrorist, even if it is righteous and just for us to punish them very severely, maybe even to the taking of their life, the way we treat them as we execute that judgment is very important because they are, even though they are fallen, they are a human being made in the image of God and they are worthy of dignity. And then we read in Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abraham and he builds through Abraham a nation and he says, through this nation, I am going to bless all the families of the earth, meaning all peoples. From the very beginning, God's plan of redemption has been set forth through his people so that he would bless all the peoples of the earth. And then we read in Ephesians chapter 2, where Jesus' work on the cross, Ephesians chapter 2 is a chapter that is one of the most important in the whole Bible. The first 10 verses talk about how Christ has reconciled lost sinners to himself. And then verses 19 through 22 spell out the societal implications of that. Not only has Christ reconciled his people to God, but he has made one new man between warring factions, the Jew and the Gentile. And these former enemies have now been reconciled, and they are now part of one new man, the body of Christ. And then we fast forward to the end of the scriptures where John the Apostle has this picture given to him from Jesus in Revelation chapter 7 where he says that there's coming a day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be around the throne of God. We will be one family rejoicing, worshiping, praising God, shouting hallelujah, salvation belongs to the Lord our God. 
Just that cursory summary of the plan of redemption should cause us to absolutely repudiate any form of supremacy other than the supremacy of Christ. And, And let me say that racial supremacy, white supremacy, or any other type of supremacy is not merely a societal ill like inflation or unemployment or the rising cost of health care or whatever other sort of temporary thing. It's not a societal ill. It is satanic. And so how much more do we need to be people who are clear about what it means to be human, about what it means to be right with God? We are not right with God by conservative or liberal politics. We're not right with God by our whiteness or our blackness or our brownness or whatever, by our Americanness. We are right with God only through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, which is for all those from every tribe and tongue that will call upon Jesus. And that puts us together in a family that supersedes any temporary differences between us. And how much more should we as people who believe this be clear and serious and sober about this? Friends, the world is broken. The threat of war looms. The the, the tension in our country never seems to cease. There are terrorists planning horrific things even as we speak. And in this room, there are marriages that are hanging by a thread. There is sin crouching at the door of people in this room seeking to not just minimize you, but to destroy you. And so how can we be people that come together and play tiddlywinks and come up with three reasons why we should have a better Tuesday? Friends, we have got to right now in this moment, every week that we gather, open God's word, have like ammonia underneath our nostrils and see clearly the only news that truly matters that can solve all of these things, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we must do the hard work to bend the implications of what we believe about God, man, and the gospel into every aspect of our lives. So to that end, let's pray for our nation, for the work of the gospel, and let's take heart that as we sang this morning that great Reformation hymn from Martin Luther, God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. And even though the enemy wants to destroy, God will triumph. Let's pray. Father, as we come now, we we long for the day that we will be around the throne. White people and black people and Asian people and Latino people and Russians and Ugandans and Indians and South Americans people from every tribe and tongue, Chinese people, Korean people, Mexican people, French people, English people, all people from every tribe and tongue that you have called to yourself will be around that throne. And Lord, we we plead and we pray that our gathering as a church, our life together as a church would be a kind of a kind of foretaste of that glory. And as we think about our nation and how tense things are and how, how, how frustrated we may be is what we see. Lord, would you, would you raise up gospel-preaching churches that this will not be solved by any political leader. We need pulpits that are aflame with the gospel and congregations across our nation that are infused with the glory of Christ. And Lord, would you do that here in this place, in this town, in this church, in this pulpit? Would Crosspoint not be marked by a division in any way along racial or ethnic or social economic lines, but God, would we be a people from every tribe and tongue 
Lord, would you give us wisdom and compassion and clarity on what it means to live in this broken world? And would you help us now as we read Romans 5, would you help us zero in on the good news of the gospel? And as we leave from this room today, would we do the hard work of applying it to our lives? And I pray that you'd do this all for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the salvation of the lost. Amen. Amen. Let's read Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So my plan this morning is to just work through these three verses, and then I want us to end by applying what I think is the the place that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is leading us to in the 11th verse. We're going to look at two questions that will help us apply, I think, what Paul is pointing us to here And now I hope that you hear nothing new today, (laughs) as you can tell just by reading this, if you've been tracking with us as we've been working through Romans, there's nothing. We're going to talk about the gospel. And here's the thing about the gospel. It's not only the, the cure for our dreaded disease of sin, but it's also like a, a, it's, it's, it's a vaccination. We need daily booster shots. And what, you know what Sunday is? It's like we're all coming to the pharmacy for our booster shot together right? And so let's think about the gospel and then apply it to our lives. Verse 9, Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. This phrase, we've been justified by his blood, is is so important. In fact, it it helps us to kind of summarize where we are up to this point in Romans. And in Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul has made the case that all humanity is fallen by nature, enemies of God, and that the only hope for us is that God would do something. In fact, he has done something, and that's what Romans 3 is about, that God has put forward his son Jesus to be a propitiation. That word means that Jesus, the infinitely perfect, eternal, always existing, second person of the Trinity, son of God, became a man, fully God, Fully man, not 50-50, but 100% God, became 100% man, lived a perfect life, and laid down his life on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that should have been ours. And he did this on the cross. And because he has infinite holiness, he has enough holiness, in fact, more than enough holiness, to atone for all the sin of all those that would ever turn and trust in him. That's what Romans 3 is about. And then God puts him forward to absorb his wrath and gives us the gift of faith. Those whom he saves, he gives them the gift of faith so that not by their works, but by their faith, people will be saved. And the gift of faith that they then put in place in Christ is what causes them to receive all of the benefits of salvation. So then the great doctrine of Romans chapter 3 and 4 is that Those who are Christians, those who are God's people, are made right with him, not by self-improvement, not by their own works, but by justification, by faith in Christ alone. So we are saved not by works, but by Christ and our faith in him. And here Paul is just reiterating that. It's like Paul can't, he can't even write two or three verses without getting back to the gospel. He keeps keeps saying it over and over again. And he says here we've been justified by his blood. Paul wants to make the point that we're not justified. You know, we say this phrase, and it's become kind of a catchphrase. I think it's a good one, but we need to be careful when we just sort of say it. Paul says that we're not just justified by our faith, but by Jesus' blood, which is a phrase that is obviously alluding to Jesus' death on the cross. Why is that important? 
Well, it's important that we realize this because it's not, we, we might be prone to think that it's the strength of our faith that might save us or justify us or make us right by God, with God. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the work of Christ. It's the strength of Christ that saves us. Th- think of our faith that God gives us as a gift, as, as like a conduit, a pipe. And I was listening to a, a message on this passage from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is the great Welsh preacher in London back in the mid-1900s, and, and somebody, evidently he didn't like to be recorded when he preached, but his associate pastors knew that he was a great sort of once-in-a-generation preacher, and so for years they secretly recorded him. It's like they didn't even ask him if it was okay because they knew that he would say no, and so as a result, we have this treasure trove, years and years and years of sermons from Martin Lloyd-Jones recorded from like the 1930s on, and I listen to them all the time. There's this app where Somebody was paid to sit down for like a couple years and compile all of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this app, and you can listen to them all for free, and it's, it's, oh. And so I listened to what Lloyd-Jones had to say about this, and he says in that that British way, he says, "Think think of the faith that we have, that we exercise, by which we are justified, as like the pipe that pipes water into your house. And he used this great English analogy. He says, think about your tea. You wouldn't say that it's the pipe that made the tea. It's the water that made the tea. Nobody goes around saying, thank goodness for this pipe that helped me make my tea, as I guess British people do every day. But it's just a conduit. And even the conduit, even the pipe was laid by God And through that conduit comes the gift of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. So lest we be duped into this sort of man-centeredness that thinks that we're made right with God because we exercise faith. No, it's because God installed the pipe of grace in our hearts and he turned the water on because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that atoned for our sin. And then he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So I think this is Paul's logic here as we're working through this. He's he's wanting to take the harder thing, justifying sinners by the death of his son, and he's saying if that's the case, then how much more will we be saved from the wrath of God? In other words, if you can run a marathon, certainly you can run a mile. If God can justify sinners by the death of his son, then how much more can we be sure that we will make it to that day? And that's what the phrase here in the second half of verse 9 is referring to. He says, how much more shall then we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So here's this phrase that's so important for us to understand, the wrath of God. What is the greatest need of all humanity? It's not that they would have a more fulfilling life. It's not that they would be cured of some physical disease. It's not that all of their relationships would be mended. It's that they would be right with their holy creator, God. And Paul is, is, he is, he is showing us that ultimately at its core, what salvation is, is not to be improved or to be helped to live a more flourishing life, but it is ultimately, finally, to be saved on that day of judgment. And he sees that as a forward thing. It's something in the future. So in one sense, we are saved already, but Paul is pointing us to a day when we shall be, we will be saved from this thing that is coming called the wrath of God. So think of this in sort of three tenses of the Christian life and in the relationship of our salvation from unrighteousness or sin. Think of, think of the penalty of sin that, that all of us face because we're by nature sinners and we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's, that's justification. 
right now, right? The moment a person trusts in Christ, the moment God opens up their eyes so that they can believe and behold and put their hope in Jesus and not their own righteousness or their own morality, but in what Jesus has done, that person is, past tense, saved. They're justified. But then a person, even though they may be a Christian, still has to deal with the power of sin in their life. Although the power of sin has been broken, it still exists. That's why Christians still struggle with sin. That's why Christians still do really stupid things, right? No, no, that was a weak, I mean, I'm a pastor of this church and I sort of know that. And I know that about my own heart, right? And so while we've been, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification, we are being saved from the power of sin, that's sanctification. We're in the process of that. And understanding that is really, really helpful. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible that I've just stared at for years is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. I think we put it on the screen. This is a, a mesmerizing truth that explains so much about my own heart and about everybody else. The writer of Hebrews says this, referring to the work of Jesus, his atoning death on the cross to reconcile sinners to himself. He says, for by a single offering, meaning Jesus' work on the cross, he has, he has, past tense, perfected for all time. In other words, it's done. It can't be undone. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do do you see the wonder of that truth? In other words, we already are saved, but we are becoming saved. We are becoming who we already are in Christ. This explains a lot of things. It it explains why in, in God's plan and providence, we still struggle. It it should inform why people around us still struggle. It should cause us to be humble about our our own sanctification. It should cause us to be humble about other people. And why has God left us in this process of sanctification? Because he wants to put our lives on display that as we battle with things, as we fight against things, as we grow in ever increasing Christ's likeness, we become a kind of earthly, slow-moving picture to an onlooking world around us that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. That's why, that's why you're still here, and that's why you're still struggling with sin in front of a world around you, is because God wants to put our lives on display. And then finally, he saves us from the presence of sin on that great day when we will be glorified with him forever. And the wrath of God that is bearing down on all people will be extinguished from those that are trusting in Jesus. Friends, nothing could be better news. But don't we numb ourselves with the temporal worries of life, but ultimately the gospel is that Jesus has saved us from that day because we are secure in him. And the point of this passage is to produce assurance in the life of a Christian as they struggle with their own sin and life in a broken world. Paul wants to root us in the logic that if God has done this harder thing, surely he will bring you safely home. And you will be saved on that day. Verse 10, he says, similarly, for if while we were enemies, we were enemies. Consider that statement. Do you think of mankind by nature in this way? Do you think of your life prior to your salvation if you were a Christian in this way? That's the way the Bible explains it and thinks of it. That's the way God thinks of it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we were enemies, and then we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were brought near. We were reunited with God. That's the point of our existence, that God would be with us and we would be with him forever. And notice there, I just want to make this point because I want you to stand on the sure rock of God's sovereignty and salvation. He has reconciled us. It was accomplished by the death of his son. 
So if you're a Christian, it's not because Jesus made a way for you and then you cast the deciding vote. He didn't just make salvation possible. He actually accomplished your salvation if you're a Christian and he reconciled you to God by the death of his son. And he does that by taking your dead heart, ripping it out, giving you a new heart, giving you the gift of faith, turning on the water faucet of his grace and causing you to see and behold Jesus. And he does all of this. And if, here's Paul's logic, if he did that much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now this, this phrase, saved by his life, just caused me to wonder this week. I was thinking about this phrase, what does it mean? And before I consulted anybody much smarter than me, I wanted to just wrestle with what in context Paul is saying here because he's, we, I think verse nine makes a lot of sense. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. And then in verse 10, it would seem to make sense to us if Paul would say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved? You know, you might think that he would sort of repeat again something about the death of Jesus. But here he says that we're saved by his life. What, what does that mean? I think that it means that we aren't just saved by his death, but by his resurrection and his present ministry. In other words, Jesus is not only dying for our sin, but victory over sin and his resurrection and defeat of all spiritual forces of wickedness gives us assurance that that is where we will be with him. Listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is this great chapter on the resurrection. He says, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, and what was going on is that the Corinthians were believing maybe that death was it. Like when you die, that's it. It's sort of like over. You know, there's nothing beyond that. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the full gospel. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, why are you saying that it's just these 90 years, a kind of nihilationism. And we sort of, you know, what, you, know what we, you know what the form of that we have here today is hashtag YOLO. You only live once. And do you see when young people buy into that satanic mindset, do you see what it can produce in their lives? That you might as well just do it. You might as well just do whatever because you only live once. No, you live forever. And, and Paul is saying here that you, you don't just live for 80 or 90 years and then you go into the grave, but there is a resurrection of all people. If there's, no, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying that everything hinges not just on the death of Christ sacrificially for our sin, but that he got up. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have passed away already, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's point is, is that the message of the gospel is not merely a moral ethic on how you can live this life better, but it is pointing us beyond this life to the great and sure certainty that Christ has risen and he will bring his people home. We will be saved by his life. We will live forever, either with Christ or without him. And Paul is wanting to root us in that certainty, that, that steadfast hope that we will be saved 
by his life. And we don't have time to get into this, but there's a whole host of wonderful things we could read from the Bible about what that state will be like. We will be with him. We will be like him. We will be as he is. Our, our bodies will be, oh, this is so good because I'm getting older. We will be glorified. I don't know what that means. I, I, there's, there's mystery to it, but we will not ache. There will be no more pain. There will be no more bad knees, sore backs. There will be no more diabetes. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more envy. There will be no more Instagram pictures to get jealous of. There will be none of that. Because we will be finally and fully free and we shall be like him as he is. Oh, now, I, I, I don't know. I, there's a, there, again, there's a lot of mystery in that. But whatever it means, it is good. And it's better than this broken tent, I'll tell you that much, right now. Oh, and, and Paul's point Paul's point, get this, Paul's point is he wants to motivate us to live now by thinking about then. And he's wanting, us to, he's wanting to bedrock us in this sure foundation that if God has done this, he will surely do that. So stand in an evil age with that hope, Christian. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what I do. In verse 11, he says this, and this is where I want us to settle down for a second and spend the rest of our time and apply this. More than that, more, it just keeps getting better. It's like, you know, Christmas morning when dad just pulls out more stuff out of the closet. You thought that was it? More than that. Yeah. More than that, we also, and I think this is the end, so I think, let me back up. I think verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5, Paul's point has been to explain the primary implication that he wants us to know at this point, of course, of course all of this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's wanting to take this great truth that he has been explaining in the first four chapters of Romans, that we are made right by Christ and the faith that he gives us, not by anything that we've done. And now he's wanting to say, because of this great glorious good news, this is the effect it should have on the Christian. I think that's what verses 1 through 11 are about. And he's really wanting to produce in us assurance assurance of our salvation. And he's saying, look, you can have peace with God. You can even rejoice in your sufferings because God's love has been poured into your hearts that even while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And now he circles back around in verse 11 where he began at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. And he says that more than that, here's the end state of the Christian. Here's the goal of redemption for God's people that we also rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. He says that we rejoice in God. The goal of our assurance is that we would exude something, not that we would just be sort of inwardly, passively assured that God is good for his word, but that we would exude, that God would magnify himself through our lives. And how do we rejoice? We rejoice in God. He, he sends us back into God. God hasn't saved us so that we can scurry on our merry way and live better lives, but the gospel sends us back into God to to make much of God. And, and then Paul, I mean, he can't even get another sentence out before he has to throw a gospel tagline on. And just in case you were wondering if you forgot from the previous two verses how you got in God, it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? I mean, Paul, he can't even tie his shoes without preaching the gospel. I mean, Paul, you just told us in verses 9, 10, actually Romans 1 through 4, and now you just want to make sure that the reason we can rejoice in God is because Jesus did it all, which is what you told us in verse 10 and verse 9 and verse 8 and verse 7. Do you see? You know why? Because Paul, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a good diagnoser, and I don't even think that's a word. I just made a, 
noun, not a, whatever. I don't know, whatever. He's a good diagnoser of the human condition, and he knows that we all suffer from the same dreaded disease, and it is gospel amnesia. And he knows that we can't get from one verse to the next without needing to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. And it is this, that we do not make ourselves right with God. It's God that makes makes us right with him through the work of his son, his death, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension. Where even right now, struggling Christian, Romans 8 says he's at the right hand of God interceding for you. Put that in your woes me pipe and puff on it all afternoon. Jesus is interceding for you, Christian. Oh, I need to hear that. (laughs) Right now, if you're a Christian, Jesus is interceding for you. And I need to hear that because I am a self-absorbed, woe is me, pitiful person. And my universe, when I'm in this room, my universe is so big because I'm with my brothers and sisters praising Jesus. But when I leave this room, it can shrink in a heartbeat, can it? And I, I need to be reminded that I can rejoice because Jesus has put me in God and right now he's praying for me. I end with this, two questions. Okay, Brad, what, rejoice in God, I, I got it. But what does it mean? What does it mean to rejoice in God? Here's my stab. Here's my stab at an answer. Certainly, it can be said many other ways, more comprehensively, more fully. But here's my stab in context of where I think we are in Romans 5, 1 through 11. What does it mean for a Christian to rejoice in God, to live all of our life in light of our present, future, full, and final salvation. What I mean by that is that the gospel, the good news, when we see it rightly, enables us to see and interpret everything, everything through a God-centered lens, whether it is a riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, or a war in Afghanistan, or a cancer cell that may be forming in your body, or a child that is rebellious, or a marriage that is dissolving, or any other thing that the good news of the gospel and all of its implications in my life and the promise that I will make it safely home and that everything in ways that are far more complicated than my finite mind can, can track in this life, God will cause it all to fall out for my ultimate final good and that I can live all of my life with the interpretive lens that God can be trusted and I can rejoice even now in much less than ideal circumstances because he has promised all of these things that we've been reading about. Do you see that? It's a a God-centered lens. It enables us to see all things Triumph and tragedy as somehow being ordained by God for our good and the maximum display of his glory. It is not detached denial. It is not merely the power of positive thinking. It's not just some sort of hollow confession. It is rooted. It's feet on the ground, rooted recognition that this world is wicked, this life is broken, we are still struggling with sin, but God has promised that he will bring me safely home. Therefore, I can interpret, even in my sadness, even in my despair, even in my bouts of depression, even in my years of struggling, I can interpret all of life through the lens of what God has promised for me, and it can give me, even with tears in my eyes, an ability to rejoice. 
Listen to what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter 3. And he ends Habakkuk chapter 3 with this wonderful meditation about this very point and what's going on in Habakkuk. God, God has raised up this prophet Habakkuk. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> uh, the first time I ever spoke publicly about anything biblical was in my home church back in California. And um, I spoke on this text in Habakkuk chapter 3. I was just like a high school kid and uh, the pastor kind of threw me up there unwisely to speak um, one day. And I can remember vividly that I pronounced the prophet name Habak Habak <laughs> I pronounced it Habakkuk <laughs> instead of Habakkuk. You didn't need to know that. I just needed to catch my breath for a second. <laughs> Habakkuk is lamenting the rebellion of God's people and God's judgment on them. But he's seeing through the smoke. He's seeing through the haze. And he's saying, despite the brokenness of this moment, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not just going to utter some cheap power of positive thinking. I'm going to, with my feet on the ground, with smoke smoldering around me of the destruction of my people and their rebellion, here's what my confession is. And he says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, 19, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And that wasn't him walking around acting like everything's okay. You know, the, the person that you meet that just seems to be a little too happy in a detached sort of way? How are you? Praise God, everything's awesome. And you're just like, what, what, really, man? What, what, what world are you living in? Home slice? Things are jacked up. Are you ever in a bad mood? Do you ever struggle? I mean, some people just have better dispositions than others. But the point is, is that Habakkuk is not unaware or detached from the despair of this life. And he says, in the midst of that, yet I will rejoice in God. God, the Lord, verse 19, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. That's what he does to his people. What does it mean to rejoice in God, to live all of life through the prism of God's promised, present, future, full, and final salvation? The second thing, second question is, let's, let's take this great truth and land it in our lives. How does rejoicing in God help us live here and now? Let's try and, try and actually like, see what this looks like in our daily lives. Two thoughts. One, rejoicing in God helps us endure life in a broken and fallen world. Rejoicing in God is not rooted in what we get from God here and now. It's, it's future-oriented. It looks beyond this life to the next. This is what... Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, picking up midway through the verse here, he says, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that day, what has been, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So as I, as I suffer the consequences of maybe my own folly or the brokenness around me, how does, how does this idea of rejoicing in God help me endure? It, it, it lifts my eyes above whatever present circumstances I may be going through or you may be going through, and it enables us to see, no, no, God somehow is in this, working through this, and has promised to actually use this suffering to produce in me, what did he say earlier in Romans chapter 5? Character, hope, endurance, joy. 
And so then what I do is I, I, I lean into community. I gather around brothers and sisters that can help me. I, I confess my frailty to them. I share things with them. I don't hide it from them. I don't get self-absorbed thinking that I will be a burden to people. I share my life with other people and I say, help me. Help me have perspective. Help me see this. Help me rejoice in God. And what happens is, is when we do that, actually life, even in the midst of a great storm, becomes strangely sweet. I told you a few weeks ago about a conversation I had with a person in this church who's going through an incredibly intense trial. And that person, as they were getting up from my office recently, after we had a discussion, just trying to encourage this person in the Lord, this person getting up from the couch in my office, walking out the door, said, almost as a kind of afterthought, but you know what? They said, they said you know what, Brad? In a strange sort of way, I'm actually glad that I'm going through this. I would have never picked it. I would have never volunteered for it. But strangely, God is using this thing to actually wean me from this earth and woo me to heaven. And I am now glad that I'm in the middle of this because I can see the sweet things that Jesus is producing in me. Friends, that's rejoicing in God. And we have to do that together. And finally this. Rejoicing in God enables us to fight sin by pursuing the greater joy. I know that there are, I think if you're alive, you're struggling with sin. And I think sometimes we make short shrift of what the Bible says about how we should fight sin by sort of assuming that once you're a Christian, you know, you should have that figured out now and you just need to grit your teeth and deny it and move on and just be good. Be good, Johnny. Be good, Susie. Be a good little boy and don't struggle with your sin. But I, I think this idea of rejoicing in God, if we see it for what it's worth, actually has a beautiful treasure to help us fight sin. Listen, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, and we end on this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24, 25, and 26. And we, we see this rejoicing in God, trusting in God, hoping in God as the key to Moses' fighting of his own sin and his, his, his obedience. He says, it says in Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, so remember Moses was a Hebrew child, that was adopted by the Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses grows up as a prince of Egypt in the household of the man who is oppressing his people. And then God calls Moses to lead his people out of captivity of Egypt against the very household that he grew up in as an adopted privileged son. And so by faith Moses, in verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he, he gave up his life of comfort. He refused to stay in that. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, his people, the Hebrew people, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Well, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about what's going on in that text. We won't. Let me just draw out this one principle, is that Moses fought disobedience. Moses resisted temptation to stay where he was, to stay comfortable. He fought that not by gritting his teeth, saying this is what God has called me to and I know I got to do it. I know kind of begrudgingly. But he fought disobedience. He fought the fleeting passing pleasures of sin by looking forward to the reward. By trusting that God had something better for him. And that is what Paul's point has been in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. 
That we endure this life. We fight sin. We endure suffering because God has promised a true and better joy for us. So how do you, young, young lieutenant that lives by himself at Fort Benning, that grew up in a Christian home and who is racked with lust and pornography, how do you fight sin? How do you fight that temptation? By gritting your teeth and just trying harder? Well, that may last for about six months, but you will get chewed up and spit out because you're not very strong. But by realizing that actually Jesus is better, he has something more, there's actually pleasure forevermore, that obedience to him, rejoicing in him, being satisfied in him is actually better than giving in to this fleeting pleasure. And how do you, how are you reminded of that daily? By, by, doing, by us doing life together, right? By us linking arms and saying, you know what? I need prayer. I'm a mess. This is me. Here I am. I, I need to rejoice in God. I need to believe that he is better than anything this broken world has to offer. How much more does God have for us? Let's pray. Father, what hangs in the balance is life and death, joy and misery, shame and grace. Lord, would you help us to rejoice in you through Christ. May you help us to be satisfied in our full and final and glorious salvation. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And for any person that may be in this room today that came in not knowing this, not believing this, not trusting in this. Lord, the answer is not for them to reach down deeper and try harder, but for them to throw themselves wholly upon your mercy at your feet, to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, the only one who can save them from your wrath to come. Lord, take this passage and transform our hearts with it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.